0: Did you know that a cotton t-shirt requires over 650 gallons of water to manufacture? Or that there are over 15,000 homes in Navajo Nation that is off the electric grid? Or what about working at the cutting edge of big science in the national labs? This is the Lovers for Change podcast. My name is Jimmy Gia. Welcome to Season 2, where we interview another six guests on how they're making a change transitioning to a clean economy. And rather than me having make an introduction to all of them, I've asked each to pose a question to a different podcast guest. And here are some of the excerpts of their questions and answers. Please subscribe to be notified when full episodes are posted that include these and many other interesting and insightful answers. Our guest Jay Bruns asked Benjamin Cott, the CEO of LightSource BP Labs, how does BP staff and internal people see its commitment to moving away from fossil fuels?
1: Yeah, well, that's a really interesting question. You'll you'll appreciate I have like an outside-in point of view, one, because I'm only 50% part of BP, but also because I've only been here for nine months. And if you had told me, Even two years ago, I would be working for an oil and gas company. I would have said, no, that's probably not not the future I had uh, anticipated for myself. Thank you very much. In February, when I heard Bernard's announcements, I was over the moon because it was just so exciting and so amazing, all the things he was saying, 2050 net zero, how we we're going to get there, that BP will change completely, essentially decarbonize, get out of oil and gas over that sort of time frame, and become a renewable energy, integrated energy company and, and service provider. So for me, it was absolutely the confirmation that I had come to the right place and that this was the place I wanted to be, and I wanted to make a contribution to over the next three, five, ten years and beyond, possibly. And it's the right place, right time, right opportunity. How do people in BPC see this? Look, I'm obviously sort of focused on the part of BP that is working on net zero, alternative energy, innovation, engineering, convenience and products, have a lot regions and cities. These are all my sort of daily counterparts, people I'm talking to, and we're working on these strategies together. How can we support them as labs, lights, like labs with digital technologies and so on? achieving the objectives and everyone there of course is completely excited about this is really gung-ho and highly highly motivated to work on that and i think that's the visibility i have of course for for some parts of the of the companies is going to mean a big big change some parts of the companies are going to be different not going to be in the future but from what i see at least the conversations i'm having everybody not just understands it but really fully endorses it and thinks and knows this is the right thing and wants to have a contribution to that
0: Ben's question was for Prachi Vakaria, Managing Director of Womenium, an organization promoting female leaders. He asked, as a tech dad, how do I encourage STEM at home for my young daughter? Yeah, that's
2: really fantastic. Great question. A few things. First is maintain that curiosity in science and just general curiosity of asking questions. And on the flip side, I will say, don't focus so much on programming. Of course, programming skills are very important. Don't get me wrong. But computer science is not science. I think the curiosity with the physical world, you know, physics itself is really amazing. And starting from there, I think, and, uh, you know, I studied mathematics, so I'm obviously biased, but from there, building skills in maths, which is a logical way of thinking, I think those two are really important skills. And those are going to be the skills of the future as well. So building those two, I think, are most important. And then everything else flows from there. I was on another panel, Looking at the the future of jobs a few months ago. And I was asked the same question, you know, what are the skills needed for tomorrow? And that's what I answered physics and maths and everything else, you know, whatever you need to learn will come from there. But start with the fundamentals. And I think the second thing is, you know, tech dad, like that's an awesome, you're already an awesome role model. So share the the work you do and uh, make it as fun as possible. And I'm sure your child will raise up to be a young engineer and scientist like you.
0: Prachi, in turn, posed a question for Jay Brunts, the senior climate policy advisor at Washington State Office of the Insurance Commissioner. She asked, how does the insurance sector navigate the risks and responsibility of autonomous vehicles?
3: That is a million-dollar question, if not a multi-billion-dollar question. It's very interesting to me that the insurance industry, we talked about, yes, insurance companies are prudent and careful by nature, but that doesn't mean that they don't stay on top of the newest technology because they are all interested in getting that part of the business that will come about because of AI. They have been watching this for at least 15 years. The answer is, I think that has not yet been determined because it's unclear there is no person in who is responsible, then who is responsible? Is it the company that made the the car? Was it a problem with the road? Uh, what happens when there's an accident between someone, you know, in a transition phase, somebody is driving a car who has an accident with somebody where the uh machine is driving the car. So I think all of that needs to be sorted out. Insurance companies are watching it very carefully because when they go to insure autonomous vehicles, they want to make sure that they'll be able to make money and that they will be able to go to whoever it was responsible for the accident. But I do think here's the bottom line is that I think something like 94% of all auto accidents are human caused. So if you take the human out of it, I think the number of accidents over time, once they figure out this technology, will drop dramatically. So insurance premiums should drop dramatically, and the roads will be safer once we get to that end state, whenever that is.
0: Suzanne Singer, a former employee at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, had a question for Judd Verdon, the current Associate Laboratory Director for the Pacific Northwest National Labs. She asks, "How are technical organizations like the National Labs building more entrepreneurial capabilities?"
4: Yeah, that's a that's one we've been working on for a long time. And so, you know, what we often do is, you know, have programs where our staff members can go work with companies, or even take time off and work with small startup companies. Some cases they have one foot back at the lab, in other cases. You know, they are out with the company and making the company succeed and always have a pathway to come back with the lab. The other way is the Department of Energy has very formal programs trying to get small companies engaged with the national labs to help them understand where they could have more impact and spinning new ideas off. You know, I think the challenge being a big organization like a national lab long-term thinking is... First part of our DNA imprint isn't, how do I make a bunch of money really quickly with a new idea? So getting those small JVs and those JV firms engaged with us has been just really helpful in finding those ideas. And then a lot of formal programs where small companies come through and help the labs figure out where those opportunities are.
0: Judd, in turn, asked a question that Suzanne answered. Suzanne is now an entrepreneur who founded Native Renewables, a solar company operating in Navajo Nation. She specializes in providing power to off-grid homes. What are the key policy changes needed to occur to accelerate a clean energy economy?
5: One of the interesting things that should happen is for the nation or nations to adopt some kind of renewable policy. We have an energy policy that exists But at this time, there's no renewable portfolio standard or anything of that sort that has been adopted. I know some of our leaders were talking about that, but I don't know how far that discussion or conversation has gone. I could see it being challenging because we are, we being the Navajo Nation, um, is in Arizona, Utah, and New Mexico, and they all have different renewable policies and standards I don't know if it'll become a question of do we try to mirror any of these states or do we come up with our own in the future. Anything policy related that can just help structure or formalize processes for implementing renewable projects is always good. The policies related to the use of the land can be pretty intense for folks to understand if you don't work in tribal communities. Some folks don't realize that tribal nations have their own processes for doing things. Sometimes those don't align with what people think the speed of business is. And so I know that can turn some people off. Yeah, just anything to help our leaders make informed decisions is probably a, a good thing.
0: And lastly, Suzanne also posed a question for Stacy Flynn, the CEO and co-founder of Evernew. How do women entrepreneurs overcome the challenges of finding funding?
6: (laughs) Oh, my God. I think the first thing that I had to get over was this feeling of imposter syndrome. When you're an entrepreneur, you have to sell something that hasn't yet fully been done or maybe hasn't been done at all. You're selling a vision. And women are, in my opinion, we like to go in and say, okay, you know, give the real deal. Like, here's what the vision is, but here's where we are. And here's, you know, likely where we're going to go. Men walk into a room and they say, my success is inevitable. And they instill confidence immediately in themselves. And as a result, they get the funding because that's what the VCs want to see. They want to see that confidence. Women have to earn that confidence. It's a different process. And I think that when you're working with female entrepreneurs, we work differently than men. And where I found the most incredible synergy is when men and women are paired up because they have vitally different perspectives around the same problem and two different approaches. And if men and women can appreciate and understand each other's perspective, I don't have to be like my partner, Christo. He's got that covered. He's got that down I had to learn how to be myself and how to really own what I brought to the table and could do better than anybody in the world. And that was partly one of the biggest learning curves I've had in my life is standing and gaining that confidence. And going in front of investors was not easy. It was a bloodbath, actually, in the beginning. I would be patted on the head like you know, what do you know about the textile industry, Stacey? Like, you're so cute. Like, like do not patronize me. <laughs> like, I'm like, like, It was really hard, really hard, but you had to earn. I mean, you know, when I worked at DuPont, Target, Eddie Bauer, I had credentials. I earned those credentials. When I started this company, I started over and had to earn all of that over time. It is tough because there's a lot of rejection A lot of misunderstanding around how women think if you're working with men. I do have a trick, though. I learned something really valuable. A no is not necessarily a hard no. It is a not right now. Once I made that switch and I kept them informed around our progress, it was almost personal getting them to come into the financing round. Many times I was successful at converting investors after I had brought them into the conversation, kept them informed, brought them into the family and developed a relationship with them. And if I couldn't get them to invest, I could at least develop enough rapport and a strong enough relationship to call them up and say, who do you know that would be a good fit? And they'd get out their contacts and make really warm introductions.
0: Thanks for joining us. And I hope you will subscribe to season two Or listen to some of our Season 1 episodes. And as always, when looking to make an impact, start by searching for your levers for change.